everyone, and welcome to Pro Tour Talk with Steve Dodge. I'm Steve Dodge. Today is... Always excited to find out what the day it is. Today is July 25th, 2018. It is the Wednesday after the Idlewild Open, and uh, we got faster internet at the house, so I am not at the library. So here we go. We might run past 9 o'clock. Who knows? Anyway, a uh, couple things real quick. Uh, first of all, if you like what we're doing, uh, like our YouTube page, subscribe to us on Facebook, hit the little bell so you get a notification when we go live. Thank you very much. Uh, second thing is we need to do the Keen Super Chat. Congratulations to Zachary Swanson and to Brad Anderson. You guys have won yourselves a pair of two pair of, no, you've each won one pair of Keen shoes. If you happen to live in the same household and you give the card to the same guy, you can, someone could have won two card, two pair of shoes. But anyway, uh, with all of that, one thing that we just did there is innovation. Um, we showed you our screen. So we had a random number on there. We had everybody who had uh, super chatted on there. And rather than just showing a picture of me looking at some theoretical random number, we actually generated the random number real time, which was great. Uh, Innovation is important when you're running something like the Disc Golf Pro Tour, uh, as the Idlewild Open just demonstrated. So the Idlewild Open presented some, some first-time challenges for the Pro Tour. Uh, we've never had a first-day rainout like that. We've never had a first-day rainout, um, but especially one with three restarts uh, and the feature card only getting one hole completed before the final rain delay. Um, we, the final uh, restart started at five o'clock in the in the evening in the afternoon, and then uh, and the feature card actually didn't go off until six fifteen. They would have been able to get an hour and a half to two hours in before uh, the eight twenty horn that was going to sound because of darkness, uh, but instead the lightning came back and they ended up only getting one hole in. Uh, so we were actually stuck with a uh, a little bit of a conundrum because the leader, Kevin Jones, was playing on a different card than our feature card. We ended up not doing a shuffle because uh, everybody, there was really no chance to shuffle people because the, uh, the feature card starting at seven o'clock on hole one wasn't gonna finish until 11. And we've already had uh, almost a third of the groups that go out before that. So there's no chance to do a shuffle in any kind of meaningful way. So we just kept the cards the same, but what that caused us to have is the leader of the tournament was on a card that was not the card we were covering. Luckily, uh, most of the feature card was actually doing very well. And so it was a, um, it, it was an impactful round. And then additionally, we went ahead and sent a camera out, namely Seth Fendley, who captured a lot of the footage of Kevin Jones's round in round two. So one of the innovations we did was we spliced all that footage together from a different card and we used it in the Circle Zero show leading into round three. Another thing that we did, uh, in so doing, we started thinking about that concept and working with Seth, working with Terry, working with Johnny over at Smashbox and Seth, our VP of PR, um, came up with a plan whereby uh, we could actually shoot some people on the second card and depending how they did, we could splice that into the live coverage. And it ended up working pretty well as the lead card caught up to the second card on hole 12. 
we actually were able to play holes one through 11 of Paul Macbeth's round. And at that point, Paul Macbeth was just one shot behind the leader, Kevin Jones. And then uh, as the second card played hole 12, the chase camera stayed with the second card and the throw camera stayed with the lead card. And Johnny did an amazing job of splicing back, of switching back and forth between cards. I guess realistically, uh, Paul did an amazing job of throwing almost always when the first card was standing down. So that just worked out really, really conveniently. Um, a tip of the tuft to Paul for thinking of that. But uh, so what ended up happening was Dixon and Terry did a great job of saying, here's what's going on and here is why this is very, very exciting. And, uh, and it was truly exciting uh, all the way through uh, until Kevin Jones's uh, approach shot on hole 17, which is where I think the final cough, final nail in the coffin was put in. If anybody, if uh, he or Zach Melton or James Conrad had eagled that hole, there was an opportunity for them to catch him on 18 if, if he had bogeyed it. But uh, once, once those guys bogeyed uh, or parred hole, eight, hole 17, it was pretty much over. But those, but Dixon and Terry, with the help of Seth and Johnny, kept it very, very exciting the whole way through. I'm really, really excited about the innovation that the Pro Tour team uh, put forth this weekend at Idlewild. A tip of the tuft. You guys did a fantastic job. Thank you very much. So uh, with that, let's move on. The other, uh, the other thing I want to give a quick shout out uh, uh, to Adam Jones and Jason Curl, the whole Idlewild crew. Um, first of all, those guys know exactly how to run a tournament. I, I suspect that they run 52 events a year. They probably do this every weekend. Um, and I'm just saying that based on how skilled they are. They have tremendous staff. Ken Rollins uh, out there uh, doing scoring and starting players. Uh, he's a world's, TD, world's class TD. Um, and they've got him doing scoring. So that's, that's the caliber of staff that these guys have. Uh, and, uh, when something like the first day's weather hits, you find out how good your staff truly is. They got most of the tents down before the weather hit. Um, they sent people out so that the players on the course would, would not have to stand out there and wonder what's going on. They would tell them, Hey, we're going to stand down for one and a half to two hours. Uh, we used, uh, the new weather page on dgpt.com to communicate with players and tell everybody, hey, here, this is when the restart's happening. If you have any questions, please go to this website and check. So that page worked out really, really well. Um, everybody got text messages uh, or Facebook messages and had access to weather.com and then additionally had people on site moving, uh, moving information around the course. Um, we did actually make a tweak after Friday so that we could move information around the course faster. And we've put that in our uh, weather weather policy, uh, which is still pending. We have to tweak it a little bit more, but uh, we will be sharing that with all of the TDs on the Pro Tour so that if weather happens again, we will be even more ready for it. Um, you constantly throw in curveballs and you need to constantly improve. That's, uh, that's the key. So, uh, a little later on, we will be uh, talking with Kevin Jones. I, re I referenced him before. He was in the lead by uh, three or four strokes going into the final round. And uh, throughout the, the beginning of the round, he didn't card quite as many birdies as he had in the two previous rounds. And by hole 12, his lead was down to one. 
And uh, and that's where, or maybe it was hole, yeah, it was hole 12. And then hole 13 is where the wheels started losing their lug nuts. And then hole 15 is where the wheels started falling off. Um, and we, we go into depth about that as well as why Kevin is on tour. Um, we talk about those couple of topics and uh, that'll be coming up in about five minutes. So stay tuned. Um, I wanna run through the tour, tour points uh, for the men and the women. And then, uh, and then we'll get right to Kevin Jones and then we'll finish it out with listener questions. So on the men's side in the tour points championship uh, with Ricky et al uh, in Europe, uh, Paul chose to stay in the United States. He played the D Discraft Great Lakes Open. He played the Idlewild Open presented by Innova and he won them both. Um, that has put him in the driver's seat for the tour points championship which Ricky has won the last two years. Um, basically, if Paul finishes in the top five at the next two events, he can't be caught. If he finishes in the top 10, it's gonna be a tall order for Ricky or anybody to try to catch him. Uh, in looking at the top eight, we've got all the, the standard names we would expect. Uh, you've, got, you've got Ricky, you've got uh, Eagle, you've got Garrett, you've got all those guys. But one guy uh, I think we haven't given much attention to um, Kevin Jones has been getting some press, but Grady Shue has not gotten a lot of press this year. Um, he currently sits in seventh in tour points, which is going to get him a, a bye to the semifinals. That's two first round, first and second round buys at the tour championship. And if he plays the way he's been playing, he's in a very good position to maintain that top, the, one of those spots in the top eight. Um, Outside of his poor finish at Waco, his worst finish is 14th place. So look for Grady Shue. He's a name, as, as well as Kevin Jones, a name of a new player on tour succeeding. And uh, a couple more top 10 finishes, and Grady Shue has put himself in great position to be in the top eight going into the tour championship and get two buys all the way to the semifinals. I think that's a guaranteed $1,000, which is a pretty good showing. Um, additionally though, the interesting story to me on the men's side is the, uh, is the players, uh, nine through 13, I think it is. And the question is, can these guys catch, uh, Grady Shue or Jeremy Colling, who sits in eighth place right now? So in ninth place through 13th in this order, um, starting with Kevin Jones, who's just two points behind Jeremy Colling. You've got Kevin Jones, Johnny McRae, Eric Oakley, Nate Sexton, and Nate Perkins. Um, those guys are all, all within 20 points of Jeremy Colling, which is basically like a, a first and a third or a, a fifth and an eighth or 10th, something like something along those lines. And you can catch up those 20 points very easily. So, the, the race for the bottom two spots, and I'll go ahead and say Grady Shue is uh, 15 or 16 points ahead of Jeremy Colling. So a little harder to catch, but definitely possible. But uh, Jeremy Colling and those other five guys are basically fighting over one spot. Ledgestone is going to set the table. MVP Open is going to decide who gets that final spot into, uh, into the, uh, with a bye into the semifinals. So, and then on the ladies' side, uh, I should say on the women's side, uh, it's pretty interesting. Paige Pierce, uh, she came back at Idlewild and reclaimed her throne. Uh, the power rankings show that she's the best player in the world. 
and she showed it at Idlewild. Sarah Hokum hung with her for a couple rounds, but could not quite stay in step. So in order for Sarah to catch Paige Pierce, she would Sarah would need to car would need to win the Ledgestone Open and the MVP Open and have Paige get a second and a fourth or worse. Um, both of those seem unlikely, and it looks like uh, it looks like Paige is going to get the one spot, and I'd go ahead and bet on Sarah getting the two spot. The real question on the women's side, the top four get a buy into the semifinals, is whether or not Lisa Fakus can move up and put some serious pressure on Katrina Allen and Jessica Weiss for the third and fourth spots. Right now, Katrina and Jessica are tied. Um, there is uh, some, uh, there are some money implications there for uh, third place on the women's side, making uh, in tour points, getting some extra money. But even more importantly, you want to be in those top four and get the buy into the semifinals. We'll look to see if Lisa Fakus can make a move. Uh, and with that, I am going to uh, I'm going to play my interview with Kevin Jones. This is pre-recorded. We've got a nice little slideshow. Hello, everyone. We are joined by Kevin Jones, uh, who is driving from the uh, Idlewild Open over to the Des Moines Challenge. Hello, Kevin. How are you doing today? Hello, Steve. I'm doing really well. How are you? Uh, it is it is very good to hear that. And uh, the Des Moines Challenge, just so you know, that's that was one of my one of my first eight years that I played back in 2003 when I I did my little tour around the country. So uh, I wish you good luck in that that beautiful stomping ground. Um, so first of all, you're you're clearly a talented athlete, and uh, and thank you for bringing your skill set to disc golf. But before we get into that part of this, I'd love to know what sports you played growing up, and were you any good at them? <laughs> yeah, so um, I played sports pretty much my entire life. My dad's a football coach, um, a high school football coach, and my mom's a volleyball coach. So I was pretty much born into it. When I was young, I played everything that I could get my hands on to, like anything competitive, any kind of sport or hand-to-eye coordination kind of thing that I would I would love. But when I got into high school, I played uh, football, basketball, and soccer. And those were the three sports that I spent the most time in. And uh, in high school, I was just pretty much only playing those sports because for, well, year-round, because even in the summer, I would be in football. So I didn't play much disc golf during that time of my life. So uh, that, that makes total sense, and I suspect that's why they set it up up that way where football is a winter sport, uh, football is a fall sport, basketball is a winter sport, and soccer is a spring sport, and you've got your talented athletes who can do all three and and make hay all year round. Yep, that's how it works for us. Uh, Fantastic. So uh, I assume you were good to great at each of those sports. Is that accurate? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I guess I was definitely respectable at pretty much every sport I played. Basketball was my weakest, without a doubt. Um, I was the <laughs> I, I was the person that probably thought he was the shooter, but he didn't make, like, a great percentage of his shot. But I definitely threw it up there a lot. And I like defense. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's funny. That's very good. Have you played basketball with any of the guys on tour? Uh yeah, I played with uh Ricky and Paul Ulibarri. Uh Paul, from what I know, is a shooter. Yeah, Paul's 
he's got hot hands. Him and, I mean, him and Ricky both, no doubt. Ricky can stroke the ball for sure. He uh, uh he has a really unique form, and he can it, it just goes in just like his putt. There you go. Um, I assume you uh, you smoked both of them when you played. Uh, I wouldn't say that. That's for sure. Well, let's say that. Let's say this. Let's say I'm really happy that you were able to be out on tour and play basketball against those two guys. Because what that means is that you made the leap to come on to the onto the pro tour, um, and not just the tour pro tour, but obviously play national tours and majors and and A tiers in between events. So, uh, how many events will you plan on playing this year? Um. Honestly, I'm probably I'm one uh, right now. I'm wanting to play an event every weekend. Uh, I'm not really getting burnt out. Um, I really enjoy being able to place well in every event, and so I just think, why not? Why not play? Why not uh, just go to a new city every weekend and learn new courses and uh, just place well, and then get a paycheck at the end of the week. Uh, that's what <laughs> really fun to me. So. Uh, I think I'm going to uh, probably keep up and play an event every weekend until Worlds. I might take the weekend off before there. Uh, so how many uh, how many years have you uh, traveled around the sun? Uh, how many years have I traveled around what? How old are you? Oh, I'm 22. 22, okay. Yeah. So your body is still feeling good. You can play around a day and feel just fine. Um, you're 22, and you've been traveling around, I think, right about one year now. And uh, what made you decide to take the leap into touring full-time? Well, um, it, it was kind of something that I really never imagined myself being able to do. I never would have thought that I'd be uh, in Oregon playing the Beaver State playing, and I never thought I'd be in Seattle playing the the Battle of Seattle or even California. I, those are parts of the country so far from Arkansas, it felt like that I never would ever get to see it. So um, getting to do that is is just awesome. I, I love that. So that that leads into my next question, which which is, are you happy that you did? But I don't think we quite heard why you made the leap. I guess seeing the world is definitely part of it. Okay, so yeah, um, getting having Codiscus uh, USA and Baker and Charlie uh, find the interest in me and seeing the potential is pretty much uh, where it all began. They uh, they gave me the RV last year to be able to tour, and so. Uh, having taking that off of my mind and not having to worry about hotels and uh, places to stay, that was a, a huge factor in in being able to get to go to Oregon and Seattle and California, and making it across the world just to play disc golf. So having the RV uh, is a, is huge for me. That was pretty much what convinced me to get going. And luckily, I did. It took some beatings early in the season last year. Uh, like Idlewild, I think I got in the 80s uh, place uh, out of, like, not that many more people. I was, it was pretty ugly. But um, it took some of those and being able to bounce back from those weekends. 
I will I will tell you that uh, there are some people listening that would love to get into the 80s, and if you could uh, improve their game to the to get down to the 80s at Idlewild, they would be willing to take those lessons uh, happily. Um, it all depends where you are. So uh, it sounds like Baker is the guy. He's the guy that runs Pro Discus USA, and uh, and I suspect because of your skill set that you demonstrated over the past weekend. And even all all season, but especially this past weekend, uh, he's probably getting some extra calls from people interested in carrying the Pro Discus brand. So uh, kudos to you for uh, for for performing and, and basically making uh, making Baker's faith in you uh, valid or proving that it was valid. So yeah. you, you you did imply that you got to see all these parts of the country, and it was awesome. Overall, are you happy that you made this leap into touring full time? Oh, I, I couldn't be more happy, honestly. Um, making this leap into just those few tournaments last year, every weekend, uh, has changed my life entirely. Uh, I got to improve in disc golf mentally and like physically, adding plenty of shots to my game to be able to score on courses. Uh, I've improved my game in the woods immensely. Um, so just making the leap and getting out there and experiencing all the courses was a huge deal to me, and that was uh, that was what really made it doable. Was just getting the experience. So there's a 980 rated guy uh, or gal. Well, actually, a 980 rated gal probably is already on tour. But there, there's a, a player who's got some real skills. And uh, and they've only been playing a couple years, and they see what's happening, and they want to go out and become a touring disc golfer. Um, what kind of things should they work on in their game, and what kind of things should they try to prepare for uh, outside their game so that they can try, uh, give it a real shot? Um. The only thing that I can really think of are, there's a couple things, would be, first of all, is uh, spin control and being able to, to, like, not only hit a gap, but hit a gap with the correct speed on the disc uh, is very important. So sometimes that might take, like, uh, fan gripping, uh, learning the fan grip uh, mid-ranges and putters and fairway drivers. Um, but being able to have speed control through, like, gaps is super important. Adding all the shots to your game is is incredibly important. If you look at your uh, best players in the world, they all have every shot in the bag and world-class distance of each shot. You know, sidearm, 400, 450, backhand, 550. Um, so they all have the shots. It's just... Uh, being able to execute those shots 100% with confidence is a uh, big time. So, like, yeah, work on uh, always try to add shots to your game. I, I, I uh, when I'm practicing, I will be whatever shot I'm working on. For example, the putter flick is what I've been working on for a long time, like probably three the last three months. When I'm practicing, I just uh, pull out my jokeries, my overstable putters, and I just flick them to the basket from wherever I am, whether it's 200 feet or 100 feet. Just get touch with them. Uh, that's big time. Um, and I guess the other thing, Steve, would be uh, being able to prepare for courses well, dissecting courses and practice rounds, and um, pretty much figuring out how to score on every hole. 
Um, and that would that would show so much so, so much uh, progress in your game. It, it would definitely have saved me tons of strokes last year at the beginning of my touring if I knew how to dissect the course correctly and play through it. So, give us a give us a concrete example. Take a couple holes at Idlewild and give us some concrete examples as to how you're dissecting a hole and what you're thinking about and how you're setting your goals on that hole. Okay, so. Um, like hole one, for example, is a very open hole, one of the more open holes on the course. Um, and to some people, it's like, you know, it's it's really a guaranteed, very gettable birdie. You really want to get hole one to start off Idlewild, just three it, you know. So the smart play and the play that that the any normal person I think should do is grab whatever they're comfortable with throwing. Um, far and straight, whatever they're most comfortable with, putting it in that that straight fairway, throw that disc, and then have an upshot from wherever that lands. Fortunately for me, I can throw my long, my high-speed driver, and I can just kind of like lace it up the middle uh, with a confident power, not full power necessarily, but a very controlled power, and it can get up to the basket and maybe give me some kind of two look. So two would be the best case scenario for me on that hole, but I'm just trying to execute a nice, easy three uh, to start off the round with a bird. So hole one kind of plays like that. Uh, another hole that comes to my mind is uh, hole seven. Hole seven is the dogleg hole to the right. It goes over the creek in the first shot. Your first shot's kind of straight. Some people throw backhand over the creek. Some people throw sidearms over the creek. Um, and then you kind of go straight uphill to the right. And you have a second shot that's very difficult because it's on a sloped fairway. And that gap is also pretty intimidating because if you hit a tree and you kick just slightly wrong, you'll be right in that uh, OB Creek, and you're going to go to the very slick drop zone, and you're going to have a very difficult upshot for your circle four. Uh, mm -hmm. Most likely looking at a bogey at worst. So uh, luckily what I saw in my practice round – I noticed that they moved the tee box back like five feet from last year. Uh, I had heard it right before I got to the hole uh, in one of my practice rounds. Um, they said, yeah, they moved the tee box back uh, five feet because people were throwing over. Like, we don't want that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. You don't want that. And I go to the tee box, and then I just look at this glorious window to the right of the tee box <laughs> that just fits so perfectly for a hyzer. And honestly, I thought it made it kind of easier for me to throw the hyzer over. Because last year, you kind of had to throw a, an ante. And just you had to throw an ante under a slight ceiling if you wanted to go over. And it was just kind of harder to get it in the landing area for me. Uh, so I just threw a hyzer. And if you have the right wind, like a wind that's coming at your face, it would rise the disc up and get you some more height. And that's kind of where I would make my decision on that hole, is if the wind is pushing my disc up, I'm going to throw the hydra, and I'm going to take the, the whole creek, the river, out of play. Nobody wants to go in that OB river and go to that drop zone. Um, so I would just – I completely avoided that in round two, threw over, uh, landed almost in the fairway and had a very nice little 150-foot flick on flat ground, not a sloped fairway either, uh, yeah. for my three. So that was uh, how I played it. And, and, yeah, and then in round three, you did not do that. Correct, because I had a slight tailwind, and that tailwind 
would probably push that hyzer down. Uh, it would definitely push the hyzer down and not get me as west as I need to be in order to to be able to, like, to be in the fairway and have an attack at the green. It could honestly put me in never Neverland. Um, you just yeah. end up way right. You don't want to do that. So, so uh, when you're throwing that, that shot up and over, uh, that's a blind shot. Uh, how many times are you throwing that, and how in the world do you find your disc? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Um, uh, I probably, throughout the week, threw that shot ten times, and I would throw it like four times around. And what I'd do is, luckily, I had my cheering partner, Austin Hannum, uh, who's in the RV with me. I'd have him, man, go up and spot for me, tell me where these discs were coming in, and uh, he would know. He would be like, yeah, the first one came in early, hit this tree, and kind of fell down here. The second one was over this limb and, and came down and filtered to here. And so he would just let me know what the discs were doing, and I would be able to know what angle like and how high they were coming out of my hand to be able to know the sweet spot of the fairway and be able to hit that in the to be able to hit that in the tournament and execute it for a three was very, very satisfying because it was just straight from that moment right there with Austin um spotting for me, seeing where those discs are coming in. Uh so yeah. I, I also showed Chris Dickerson the route. Uh he thought it was a pretty good route in practice. He executed a three in practice. So Paul was looking at it, too. We were at an escape room, and he was telling me that he was looking at that route. I don't know if either of them did it, but uh, it definitely was a possibility, no doubt. So you're sitting in a – I picture you sitting at a uh, at a table eating pizza with uh, you and Paul McBeth and Chris Dickerson and uh, – and and some other player that can throw Garrett Gerthy. Let's throw him in there. Uh, yeah. Do you guys ever? You're sitting around a table, and does one of you ever say, "Hey, uh, you know that whole seven at Iowa? I think I'm going to go up and over to the right." And do you guys ever just like say, "What are you talking about, man? You crazy?" Do you guys Absolutely. make fun of each other like that? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's funny. You know, like Drew Gibson, uh, Garrett Gerthy, all those. You know, Simon and Eagle will all. Uh, ask each other because we know you know we see very similar things on courses usually uh in order to like execute the the birdies that we want and and it might be like an easier route for some of us so drew would ask maybe yeah hey did you see that hydro route are you taking that or where's your disc ending up when you go this way and yeah we discuss that stuff a lot actually it's pretty funny that the the, i would love to be a fly on the wall just even thinking about those shots, that, that's a, those would be great conversations. Um, so the things that I heard are, number one, learn to throw with speed, and uh, number two, uh, dissect the course and know what you want to get on the court, on each particular hole. So on hole one, your goal is a three. If you get a two, that's okay. But if you get a three, you're happy and you're moving on. Um, what was your goal on hole seven? Um, on hole seven, hole seven, yeah, yeah. Uh, so my goal on hole seven is a, a three. That's the best case scenario. Uh, round one, I had a slight, I think it was a slight left to right wind. It wasn't very favoring to the hyzer, so I threw the sidearm on the inside route. I got to the uh, landing area, the really sloped landing area, and I had also obviously definitely practiced that shot too, because that's a super specific upshot if you've if you've walked that course it's extremely sloped it's uh uphill further than it looks 
and it's a gap shot. It's just dead straight. So I practiced that shot probably six times. I, I, I practiced it at least two or three times around just to make sure I've got the run up or the standstill down. And I executed it first round for a three. So that that definitely paid off as well. So just to reiterate, because this is crazy, and I I didn't realize this, the first round you threw a flick and set yourself up, and because you dissected and practiced that next shot, you were able to execute and secure the birdie three. Yeah. Second round, you went up and over and landed somewhere in those woods for a relatively easy up and down because you practiced that shot and you had Austin Hannum helping you out and you knew exactly where you were trying to go with what power and what hyzer because of the wind and you knew the wind was favorable. And then the third round, you threw a backhand on that, if I'm correct. No, I did. I threw a flick again. The wind threw a flick again. Okay. I thought you threw a backhand. So I was going to say it's crazy you threw three different shots. But um, either way, it's still a phenomenal hole. And it kind of demonstrates exactly what you're talking about when you say dissect the hole, figure out exactly what you want to do, how you want to score, and if the wind is different, figure out if you can attack it. Yeah. That's fantastic. Absolutely. So hole eight is a good example as well. For the for oh, figuring wow. out. Hole eight is that's a crazy one. Is, isn't that for me that's just simply you just have to execute your, your two or three upshots and there's it seems like there's not a lot there. What's what's the trick to hole eight? Oh, okay. So hole eight to me is uh you know, they put it as a par five. I like that. I like that because that makes everybody think that like you know, if you get a four, you're doing real well. If you get a five, that's fine. But um, for me, like, the play is a flex forehand that if you don't have the shot, I think it's necessary to try to figure it out for that shot because it's not very far. It's probably, like, 300 feet that you just have to hit the correct angle with the right disc. And if you do, you can get up there in the opening and have another sidearm for a possible three, which is the score that I was definitely going for in that round. And um, unfortunately, you know, it's a really tight gap. So a lot of the time it's not going to work out. But, you know, if you're going for the three and it's not that risky of a shot, for me, four should be worst case scenario. And it and it really was for me. I just didn't really, I didn't make putt or I didn't scramble very well. So, but I had to look at it on round one for sure. Okay. Uh, so, so you're thinking about that, sh- that shot and trying, trying to figure out exactly how far I can penetrate without losing accuracy. Yeah, I mean, kind of. It's really more of like a, just a specific angle on your any flick. You want to uh, flick a fastest on a specific angle so that it holds the ante, runs down that fairway, and then maybe I wanted to kind of skip just a little bit right, and you're in this opening for just another 300, 350-foot flick to be able to get onto the green and uh, – and have a bird, or like a three look, which would be the score that I would want on that hole. Yeah. That was my play. Uh, and I guess one thing we should go ahead and we should put a little asterisk on this and say when you're dissecting a hole, dissect it for your own game. Uh, Absolutely. And that's what it's all about. I appreciate that you said learn every shot you can and try to throw, learn to throw them all with various speeds. Um, I, for example, don't have that 350-foot flick, so I would not try to set myself up for that shot. I would I would 
dissect that hole differently because I have a different game than you. And so yep. just dissect the hole for your game. Yes, sir. And you might come out with, you might have like a different, if you're throwing a back end down the, the gap, you might be just playing for a four, which is fine. If you execute that four, that's, that's awesome. You just execute it and move on. So you And play. you only lose one stroke to Kevin Jones. Ideally, I didn't free it, but that was my goal. <laughs> so you, I'm going to segue here for a second and then get right back on. Uh, but this is just a quick yes or no question. Hole two at Deglo at Discraft Great Lakes Open. It's a big par five up the hill. Yeah. If they set that to a par four, would you have played it differently? No. Um, okay. Not at all. Do I need an explanation? If well, if you would like, well, let me let me re let me rephrase the question, um, okay. and, and then you can explain that. Uh, is there a hole? In, because you mentioned hole eight, and you said it's nice that they made it a par five, because that way you can get the four, and you feel good about getting the birdie, and you you know you're not you're not going to beat yourself up. Um, is there a hole? that you've played where if the par was different, you think you would play the hole different? I would hope not because that's what that's not the point. The point is to look at the hole as, like you said, as you, what fits your game. And so if your game is easiest to get a four, which is who cares what the par is, if it's easiest to get a four, go for the four and, and make it happen. But the par should not influence what what you're throwing. That's why I don't really understand a lot when people uh, complain about par. It, it doesn't really matter to me. But I did enjoy how par played this week, and they kind of just I just enjoyed the the fact that I could get eagle in certain holes. It, it seemed like it played well. And it never hurt. It feels nice to get an eagle. So that's you know that's never a bad thing, I suppose. Um, unless everybody's doing it, and then it's not quite as special. Um, that's actually one of my favorite lines from the movie The Incredibles, uh, the first movie where the guy said uh, he wanted to give everybody a superpower so that, you know, he said once everybody's incredible, then nobody's incredible. And uh, yeah. I thought that was a pretty interesting side note. But do you want to explain uh, how you attacked hole two at Deglo, and then I'll ask uh, I'll ask her my segue question? Uh, yeah, uh, actually, yeah, because that hole is a very good example of um, – you know, par may be affecting how somebody plays the hole. Um, so it's a par five, uh, but for somebody with distance of, I'd say, maybe 500 feet, uh, somebody that can throw a nice straight 500-foot shot, they can uh, throw that shot, end up on the hillside, and then have, for for me, it was, uh, I threw a mid-range on my second shot. So without a doubt, my play on that hole was to, it's very crucial to hit the, the fairway, obviously, if you want to have any look at a three. If you miss the fairway, then it's plan B. You've got to scramble to the fairway and then get close to the basket and make a putt for a four. Uh, right. Yeah, for a four. So my play was to get it up the fairway as far as I could, and then I I practiced that shot as well, too, because that was a, another very specific upshot, you know, so... You're facing like 350 feet straight up hill. It's an uphill run up. So I practiced that shot very many times in my practice rounds, and uh, 
I was happy to to get that one pretty close on every time in the tournament. That was pretty big time. Uh, and that's a that was a that I actually liked that hole a lot. Um, and rather than getting hung up on par, uh, I'd love to just move on. And I I loved hearing you know you, you're exactly right. If you if you nail your first shot, then you're all set to be aggressive. And otherwise, you have to figure out how to maximize your opportunity to get the four. So yep. the the next question that I've been skipping over for this last little segue or uh, tangent um, is. That 980-rated player, when they start saying, okay, I want to go out on tour, what is the hardest part of being out on tour? Um, I think it's uh, it would have to be like what A.J. Risley, I remember we had a conversation. Uh, A.J. Risley said that the hardest part about being on tour is that, that Monday or Sunday after the course, and the pros kick your butt. Um, being able to bounce back from that, get ready to practice another course, get ready to compete, get ready to maybe get your butt beat again, and then bounce back. It's the hardest thing in, in that we do, I think. Uh, obviously, traveling and expenses are a big deal. Um, luckily, I have a sponsor that's been able to help me out through like travel expenses. But um, mentally, being able to bounce back from bad weekends is, is so crucial. It almost sounds like you're human, Kevin. Yeah, we all are. Surprisingly. And uh, the, it's really, I'm so, not happy that that's the case, but I'm so happy you shared that because it sounds like the hardest part of your job is, is dealing with the failures, and that's the same as every other person. This segues into the fact that this is your job, and some days the course kicks your butt, and you have to get up and drive six hours and go dissect some more difficult holes and figure out what numbers you want to get on them and pretend that all of that didn't happen. And uh, that's what you're doing right now. And I'd love to know how you're feeling right now uh, about Idlewild and about the Des Moines Challenge. Yeah. Um, so you're exactly right. It's a really tough part, especially with uh, the situation and scenario that I was in after the second round. Uh, it was looking really good, but um, much about the same as I was yesterday. Like, after after I uh, completely – there was just a couple crucial shots on the course late in the round that – are just super important. If you two shots that if you don't hit, you're going to be scrambling for par at absolute best. And I messed up those tee shots, and I ended up not scrambling very well. And uh, I did, and I just kind of accepted it there. I just didn't, I didn't execute the shots when it came down to it. Um, every now and then, I'll still sigh about it and stuff, just be like, you know, what could have been and whatnot. But I, I think I'm really taking it well. Part of that is because of the support that I have. Um, on Facebook and like back at home, uh, and and the weekend, I was getting encouragement all weekend, uh, whether I was doing good or bad. So that that goes a long way with me personally. Support is absolutely critical, um, and uh, I know I was at a watch party here at Maple Hill, uh, happily on vacation with my daughters, and. It, you were getting uh, you were getting support from everybody in the room, 
Um, there are there are people that love uh, basically every disc golfer on tour, and uh, and I don't want to take away from the fact that obviously people are rooting for Paul McBeth, but uh, when when somebody new steps up and says, "Hey, everybody, I'm here also," uh, you can't help but say, "I want to see this guy succeed." And and there were a lot of people pulling for you and sending you positivity. Um, so. You're on the whole of T15. At that point, did you were you aware of the score and how close it was at that point? Yeah, I was just uh, that was about the time when I uh, knew what I needed. Knew that I was like still in it. I just needed a couple more birdies. Um, and I and what happened was I got a little greedy on that tee shot. I feel like uh, looking back on it, there's a. The line calls for kind of a uh, a hyzer flip, hyzer to late flipping power shot kind of thing, and it goes really straight and uphill. And I sawed the angle off by trying to uh, throw a little straighter shot that maybe gets way up into the deck. And I was really probably really looking for a three on that hole because I knew I could do it, but I think I got a little greedy. Um, by trying to wrap the corner instead of just playing up to the left side and having a flick in there. And then I just took a not very nice kick, and I was in jail after that. Uh, You were definitely in jail, and the unfortunate part is that you stayed in jail. And uh, when you're walking back into those woods, and you see your disc off the drive, and I feel like it was down in a gully. Not only was it in the woods, but it feels like it was in a ditch. Um, where does your heart go at that moment? Oh, man. Obviously, that was a super crucial moment. Um, at, the, at the time, all I was thinking was, all right, you got to salvage what you can get. You got your face with this. That's just what we do, pretty much. You know, you're faced with this. What's the best case scenario that you can get? And I tried to. Uh, really didn't have. I didn't even have a flick roller, honestly. There was just the smallest gap that I tried to punch through. And I hit a tree, and this is kind of the funny part. I hit a tree square and about ten feet in front of me, and the disc came flying. Straight. I was on my knees throwing the shot, and the disc came flying straight back at me upside down, sliding, pretty fast pace, and it slid right through my legs. I had to kind of straddle it, jump up and straddle the disc and let it just slide 10 feet directly behind me for the same shot but further away. Oh, my God. Uh, So I didn't see that shot on the live coverage. Um, Yeah, it was pretty far over there. But uh, hearing you describe that, in one way it's comical. But more than that, it's tragic because uh, that disc is sliding back between your legs, and you're thinking that's that's it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like really, <laughs> I tried not to think too too much about it at that point, but but definitely that was a very very heartbreaking moment for me. But even after that hole, man, I I think I was like four back. I didn't necessarily give up quite yet. I was still trying to 
get some birdies and see where it put me. Because Paul took a five on 17, you know, and that gave pretty that was that that was the really disappointing part to me was the fact when I heard he took a five on it and all I really needed to do on that whole 15 was par in order to be able to have a chance to get back into it. But but yeah, that was a crucial moment. And you're right. You weren't, you weren't actually out of it. Um, but that's the moment where, where they start to dim the lights and, uh, and they, they wonder if the singing is going to continue. Um, but you did fight back. You did a great job on hole 16. You set yourself up for a, a circle two look at, at, uh, at the Eagle, which, yep. which came up a couple inches short. Um, and I, it, again, it, standing there with a bunch of people and just, Everybody groans as that thing bounces right off the top of the the basket, mm-hmm. the cage. Um, yeah. And then on hole seventeen, you you were going. Were you going for the eagle on that? Yeah, I mean that's more so my 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 play is throw a, a, a sidearm, lace it down that gap, and let it finish a little right. Hopefully, be like right and short, about forty thirty feet, and have like a nice downhill putt at eagle is what my play yeah. was. So I'll go ahead and just ask on hole 17, is that a is that a fluky hole? Should they cut some trees? Should they change the OB, or is it is it okay? Um, man, I, I played this course last year. Um, some of the gaps I thought were cleaned up. All the gaps that I, that were cleaned up, I thought were beautifully done, and. Uh, I wasn't. I didn't ask for them to clean them up in the first place, and I'm not going to ask for them to clean them up now. That I, uh, I like 17. I think it's pretty fair for the most part, as long as you not hit the gap. If you not hit the gap, if you don't, then you're leaving it up to fate for the most part. But I'm I'm, I'm fine with it. I don't think it's an insanely fluky hole. I missed the gap uh, two times, and one of the times it kicked OB. So. I need to either throw right and avoid the gap that can kick OB or or hit the gap. Uh well Kevin, you uh you like hole seventeen and uh and we like you. Uh thank you very much for taking the time to uh to come and talk to us about making the decision, uh some of the some of the challenges that, that you've overcome and uh and talking about Idlewild with us. Um I can't wait to see you in Ledgestone, uh, at the Ledgestone in, in Peoria, and uh, wish you nothing but success at the, uh, the A-tiers you play in between. And Steve, it's been a pleasure being on. Uh, thank you for having me. So there we have it. That's been Kevin Jones uh, of Pro Discus. Thank you, Kevin, for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, thank you, Adam, for the uh, for the ten dollars shout out. And once again, congratulations to uh, it was Brad and Zach for winning the Keen Shoes. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next time on Pro Tour Talk.